there is a lot of grunt work involved, you know, in, in promoting your work and trying to get out there and build an audience. There really isn't a shortcut. So when you ask about a breakthrough, I think clarity of vision is, is at the heart of all of that. Welcome to the Female Entrepreneur Musician Podcast with Bree Noble. Bree is a musician, entrepreneur, speaker, and founder of Women of Substance Music Radio and Podcast. Bree's interviews with successful female musicians and industry pros are both inspirational and informational. She also answers your questions about the music business. Bree is on a mission to help you create great music, connect with your fans, and grow your business, and to truly become a female entrepreneur musician. Hey, this is Bree Noble, and you're listening to the Female Entrepreneur Musician Podcast, where we talk about making great music, connecting with your audience, and growing your business. As I mentioned last time, we just hit our one-year mark on the Female Entrepreneur Musician Podcast, so go check out all our great episodes at femusician.com. Now, when I first started this podcast, I had been thinking all along a guest that I wanted to have on the show, but I was kind of waiting, you know, seeing how the show went, how, you know, my interviews went, how popular the show was, and then I would approach this person because I'm a real fan of this person, and she you know, inspired me from my early days of being an indie artist. And so I was kind of waiting to see how the show went, plus waiting to see how, you know, when she was going to have something big coming out that I could help her promote. And we are at that point now, and I'm so excited to be doing this episode interviewing Rachel Sage. I have to say, you know, because I've been a fan for a long time, um, you know, talking with her, I was amazed at how humble she is how approachable she is, and just how much she cares about her fans. And, you know, I wasn't really surprised because knowing the integrity that she has within her music and, you know, all the press releases I've seen about her and what I've heard about her on stage and how she relates with the audience. But, you know, when you actually speak with someone and find that they really are what you think they are, it's awesome. So I had a great time talking with Rachel. She has so much good advice for you guys. Um, you know, she's on her 13th album. She started out just like you, you know, scrappy singer songwriter trying to figure things out. And, you know, now here she is, she's got a record label. She's got people working for her. She's got a tour manager, you know, but even in all that, she is still self-managed because she believes in really taking charge of her own career and knowing exactly what's going on behind the scenes. And I really respect that because that's what I always teach my students. You know, you can have other people come on board on your team, but you need to understand all the workings of everything and know what's going on, even if other you're delegating to other people because you do not want to be left in the dark. And speaking of that, if you have heard stories about being left in the dark, one of the worst first ones I've ever heard was last week's episode with Tina Harris. So if you didn't hear that one, you need to check that out. Episode number 45. Um, it will really get you thinking about whether you really want a record deal or not and how, if you do want that, how you need to be prepared for that. So if you missed that one, go check that out. But back to Rachel, I'm going to tell you a little bit about Rachel. You're going to really enjoy this interview and be inspired. Rachel Sage has been recording and self-producing albums since her teens and has released 12 full-length recordings that have earned her a devoted international following. A multi-instrumentalist and four-time independent music award winner, she approaches every new project with the same wide-eyed zeal that she did when she first started recording music. Rachel Sage's new album, Choreographic, delivers a musically ambitious and emotionally accessible tribute to her very first love, Dance. Connecting to her roots in ballet, the New York City-based artist envisioned each song as a fully choreographed multimedia experience. The result is an inspired set of piano-based chamber pop, merging orchestral elements with her signature blend of folk, pop, and rock. The album was co-produced by Sage and Grammy Award-winning producer Andy Zola who also produced Dina Menzel and Rod Stewart. So here is my enchanting interview with Rachel Sage. 
So that's a little bit about Rachel Sage. So Rachel, is there anything that's not in your little four sentence bio that's a little more personal you might want to tell our listeners about yourself? I would love to. Right now I'm I'm at home in New York City and we're getting a fortuitous moment of no sirens wailing by. <laughs> and I, I think at, at the heart of all of my work is, is um, you know, the desire to tell stories. So in one way or another, I've been doing that since I was a little kid. Sometimes I made up things. The, the unkind word for that in Yiddish is bubby meiser. That means white lie. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, thank goodness I found this beautiful outlet and, and lifestyle called singer songwriting that allows me to, you know, tell stories and, and cultivate my imagination in a way that's legal and, and not punishable by parents. So, um, it, it's, that's, yeah. that's funny. I just think <laughs> about my seven year old daughter and I think maybe she should go into songwriting cause she's really good at lying. Well, you know, it's a, <laughs> it really is a funny thing. I, I think a lot of the time, you know, I was I was afraid a lot as a young person. I did come from a strict family, but I also had an older sister. And, you know, they kind of worked out a lot of stuff on her in terms of uh, discipline and punishment. And and I was that second child who wanted to just kind of be perfect and people please and, and do everything right. And and in a lot of ways, I, I did make that happen, <laughs> you know, but it, it also gave me a lot to write about. You know, I, I had a lot of secrets or what I what felt like secrets. Maybe people were figuring them out around me, but I had my own kind of imaginative world that very quickly um, developed into a language of, of lyricism and also visual art and, and dance expressiveness. So I was just so lucky to be surrounded by the arts from a really young age, kind of plopped into dance class given a piano to practice on, even though my parents were not musical, which is an enormous gift I, I just am so grateful for because if that piano hadn't been in the living room, who knows, you know? I don't know what if what I would play, if anything. I might have just sung in a choir and, and never learned how to play piano by ear. But in a nutshell, I've been doing all this since I was a little kid, even as young as three years old. And it just kind of naturally evolved as I grew up into... Uh, into a career and, and thankfully something that sustained me emotionally and, and otherwise through the years. Wow. That's amazing. So your parents weren't musical and most of the time you read in bios and you see people come from a musical family, you know, so how did you get into music <laughs> when your parents weren't into music? You know, they were into music. So there was that, like my dad is literally tone deaf, deaf and so my dad can't even sing happy birthday on tune and we would tease him. And, you know, mm -hmm. if nothing else, it gives you confidence. You may be a mediocre singer in your family, but you sound like Pavarotti compared to someone who's tone deaf. So that was probably good for me. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> confidence exactly. Builder. And, you know, they started to hear me playing these songs by ear on the piano. And my dad, who's a huge doo-wop fan and a Beatles fanatic, he really, really encouraged me. And even though he's not musical, very quickly, he would say, you know, Rachel, that's terrific. You sounded out that song by ear from the radio with one hand. Can you get the other hand involved? That's what Billy Joel would do. You know what I mean? So he would huh? say funny things to me as a kid. And and then he would say quite serious things and, and kind of set the bar for me by pointing out songs like, you know, Don McLean's American Pie. And I was a little kid. And even at a young age, I, I did get that sense of kind of American individualism and, and telling your story and being original. It was a very kind of, you know, immigrant mentality, I think, that they imparted to me and, and my mother as well with, with an emphasis on the great Broadway show composers and, and a lot of pop music that she loved, everyone from Elton John to Billy Joel and Carole King. So they loved music. They just didn't know how to play it or sing it. But, you know, that's enough sometimes. It's just that belief and encouragement. Oh, for sure. And obviously they encourage you in, to be involved in all the arts. And, you know, you have talent and experience in music, dance, design, art. I mean, how did you end up choosing music out of all those things? I think it really chose me. I, I you know, it wasn't like these things were sort of displayed, you know, on a, on a platform. And then I reached out and, and grabbed one. 
I think it's it's a it's a continuum and you know you're you're a little kid and and everybody finger paints everybody sings songs in nursery school everybody you know is is creative and expressive at that young age and as we all know society kind of buckles down on you and tells you to focus on just this one thing or another that will be your future and and there's so much societal pressure and then we sort of narrow our field and our vision thinking about what's acceptable or not to pursue as a livelihood. But for me, um, I I will say my upbringing definitely emphasized being well-rounded. So while all those things were encouraged, you know, music was inadvertently the thing that also allowed me to continue higher education. Whereas dance, ballet at the time, at least, you know, now things are different with online education, but Back then, if you were going to be a professional ballerina, you know, you were going to get into a company at 15, 16, you weren't going to college and you were maybe already on correspondence courses in high school or attending professional children's school in New York, something like that. And for better or worse, my folks weren't so into that idea. So that kind of naturally filtered out dance as, you know, my, my, my future, um, although it's always remained a part of me, but I, I would just say that music kind of encompasses everything else because in music you get on stage, you perform your songs, you are doing a bit of acting. You are able to move in a unique and expressive way. You're writing, you're designing your appearance and, and the visuals for it. So of all of the arts, for me at least, it's the one that kind of tied everything together and allowed me, like I said before, to, to tell my story. Um, I don't know that I had the talent to just do that through art or through dance. Um, like some people can draw a picture or make a painting and, and that is literally all, all you need to hear and see, you know, is jumping off that page. I, I really gravitated toward melody and language, poetry. And, and those were the things that allowed me to also kind of escape from the day-to-day things I was experiencing as a kid that were challenging, like being bullied or just being different, you know, a lot of adolescent confusion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, songwriting is definitely a perfect uh, medium through which to to say the things that you might be afraid to in, in general discourse. So That makes a lot of sense. And I, I didn't even think about the fact that going into dance that that would be the course that you would take and that would prevent you kind of from going to college. And of course your parents, you know, would love for you to go to college. And the fact that you got to go to Stanford, I mean, who can turn that down? Well, you know, know, Frank, I probably would have, I, I, you know, when you're young and you're focused, you, you know, you got a mind of your own and you want to do what you want to do. I, I very much, you know, would have, just gone to New York and and tried to get like an acting agent and played gigs at the bitter end and stuck with dance and tried to sort of be a triple threat and do it all. But Mm -hmm. I did, you know, family is very influential and, and my family were so loving and supportive of the arts as these positive kind of extracurricular activities. And, And beyond that, even, I mean, they let me take dance to a very, very high level going to school of American ballet, but that lid was always if it interfered with education and same with mm-hmm. acting, you know, I did a lot of leads in school plays and they loved that. But if, if it was something that was going to interfere with my academic studies, like, you know, going on auditions professionally or whatever, that was just a no, it was sort of a given. So I had to wait until after college to really be a young professional artist. Uh, I didn't want to. So I kind of went, kicking and screaming. <laughs> but again, it, it gave me some lyrics and and it also you know, you grow up in college. It's I didn't really want to go, but I it, being immersed in an environment with so many extraordinary people and and bright people and creative people was obviously very transformational. So I think that's true. I mean, my husband's a college professor. Okay, I'm around well, there college you go. students all the time. And <laughs> I, I, I revealed them. something that maybe I shouldn't have, but <laughs> no, no, I watch them grow up and yeah. I do see them grow up over the time. And it's amazing to see how they transform. But so, you know, you, 
I, you did get to do some of that singer songwriter stuff when you're out in the Bay area, right? Yeah. I, you know, when I went off to college, I was already very, very focused on my music. I'd been making demos since I was 13, 14 on a four track, um, in my basement and, and even got to the level where I was working with some pretty high level producers who, who were intent on helping me develop a sound and maybe get a record deal or a publishing deal. But again, it was all if it didn't interfere with school. So, mm. you know, I would do it up to a point and, and I could enter contests. <clears throat> things like the Billboard Songwriting Contest or ASCAP. And and I won a few things. That was great. But career wise, it had to hold till after college. What was wonderful was that I very quickly found an, a place for myself at the Stanford Coffee House. We call it the Coho. And, mm. you know, sadly, I think it's been replaced by a Starbucks now, but Oh it, man! I know, but it was really quite a scene, and I'd never really experienced anything like that. I, I thought I was such a cosmopolitan kid. I grew up, you know, around New York, and went to Lincoln Center, and I saw Broadway shows. But I had missed any kind of bohemian, you know, really like down to earth, experimental type of creative experience. And the coffee house was absolutely that. I mean, I got a gig there, and it paid a hundred bucks. I would have done it for nothing, but it was exciting <sighs> to be deemed a professional and I have two hours to perform whatever songs I wanted to. And I recruited a, a fiddle player who lived in my dorm and, you know, it was, it was exciting. <laughs> I got to kind of try all that on for the first time and also incorporate things I was learning, even subconsciously, you know, you're studying a certain play or Shakespeare or whatever it is. And suddenly you're writing a song about that and you were able to perform it that week for an audience. And it, it was a kind of an incubational time for me. And, and that's like, so true. You're studying philosophy and all of a sudden all the philosophers, yeah. you know, thinking is ending <laughs> up in your lyrics, you know? Yeah. I think I had to do some AP French thing and, oh. you know, like to fulfill, to get out of my language requirement. I had one project left and it was to do something with French poetry. And I, I did a song and I performed it at the coffee house, you know, it's, it, it was a, f a cool way to be able to bridge what, what was already my passion with the academic environment. And also I, I was writing some songs for the theater department at the time for various uh, theatrical productions, and I would perform them myself and give them my own spin. And so it was, it was a great time. And, and, you know, beyond that, I started to see people were doing that out in the wider world and in San Francisco and Palo Alto and, and it was just giving me ideas for how I could go about kind of marketing my music after I graduated. Um, so it planted those seeds. That's, that's a great education there. Yeah. So in those early years, once you left college or, you know, while you were in college and then once you left and kind of started out on your own, were there any times that you were just struggling, just really frustrated and you're like, this is not working, you know, and then you finally figured out how to break through that. Is there any advice that you can give to our listeners? Because a lot of them are kind of in that, you know, those early years of trying to break through. And, you know, what, what did you go through and, you mm -hmm. know, what can, what did you learn from it? Oh, there are so many times like that. Let me pick a couple. I mean, I, I do remember after I had encountered Ani DeFranco's music and it, it was so um, helpful to me just emotionally, you know, the, the things she was writing about, I did sort of a 180 on, on what I really wanted to be and do as an artist, which was really important. You know, my goal shifted from having a top 40 hit to wanting to cultivate an audience and tour and, and be that type of independent artist. So that was really crucial to begin with was following a path that I knew would energize me and, also helped me evolve and develop artistically. And I turned down a, a major label record deal. You know, it was mm. because I was scared to death that I wasn't ready. And then I also, by some of the very concrete things that were said to me and suggested about how to sort of reformulate my music and my production, and it just all kind of made me nervous. And I knew I, you know, I couldn't wrap my head around it and, and do it authentically. So that was sort of step one was to kind of, to really create my own mission, you know, mm -hmm. what I wanted to do. And I had a pretty clear picture of it by maybe my end of my first year in New York. And, you know, I'd, I'd done a bunch of showcases in New York at the bitter end and trying to get this lawyer to come out or that manager and get discovered or blah, blah, blah. 
And then at a certain point, I just realized that's an, that had very, very little to do with what I wanted. What I wanted was to build an audience. And I started doing that by booking shows and touring sort of concentric circles around uh, the, the New York area. And, and then I even, you know, I cast a wider net. I, I sent my album to radio, CMJ, and I did it on my own, which was an enormous amount of work. But when a station would play my record and I would chart, you know, next to Jewel and Sarah McLaughlin or whomever, it was so, you know, it fueled me so much and it gave me a lot of hope that there was a place and a space for my work. And and then I would try to parlay that into an opportunity to go visit that station or to, you know, get a recommendation on where to play locally. And, and these things are very common sense. There is a lot of grunt work involved, you know, in, in promoting your work and trying to get out there and build an audience. There really isn't a shortcut. So when you ask about a breakthrough, I think clarity of vision is is at the heart of all of that. And then certainly if there are models and examples of other peers or other artists sort of above you career-wise who've you know blazed certain terrain and you can learn from that and copy that if it's applicable and sort of modify it toward your own goals. I did a lot of that. Um, but, you know, obviously submitting to the Lilith Fair contest and winning that and and then later on, you know, having opportunities to tour with Ani and then Eric Burden in Europe. Those were things that did help me reach wider audiences at once. But they all started with that that pitch letter of kind of knowing where you come from, what you have to offer and then sharing music that I like to call it your no apology recording mm. where you, you feel so strongly and so confidently about it that you can't wait to share it. And that took a little while. You know, I had a lot of demos that were kind of half baked and mm. were they this, were they that, who did I really want to be? What did I want to sound like? And I, you have to experiment a little bit, but when all that's sort of in a row, I think you're really poised beautifully to just, you know, be your biggest champion and, and always kind of think about the other person, what their day might be like, how they might want to be approached in an email, um, and respect their time and all those sort of common sense things we always hear. Um, that's really, I still try to do that every day. <laughs> wow. I, okay. I have to interject yeah. here because I mean, all of that was so good, but I have to say about how I, how I discovered you. Mm -hmm. So I discovered you on mp3.com oh, back in the that? like 2000, when, what year that was, you know, yeah. where, where independents were really finally getting a voice, right. you know, through online. And so, you know, I loved your grassroots approach. Like I just kind of watched you. So, you know, when you say watch people that are doing something you want to do, that's exactly what I was watching you, Aww. you know, even though I'm in a completely <laughs> different genre from you, you know, back then my, I had my music on mp3.com and then my husband and I had like a Christmas CD that we did that was all this acapella Christmas stuff. And we were on mp3.com and, you know, we got on their compilation and stuff. And to, I loved that, that platform. Yeah. It was a great time. And people used it kind of like they use Facebook. Now they direct messaged each other. Mm -hmm. Did you have any real kind of opportunities that came through mp3.com? Cause I had a couple I could touch on there that were quirky, you know, where you just yeah, I mean, other people. than getting on their compilation which CD, amazing, which was huge. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, I had someone reach out to me who wanted to know if I wanted to tour Japan. Oh, I mean, he could have emailed me, you know, but he didn't know how to reach me that way. Probably, he found me on MP3.com as a promoter, and it, you know, I researched it. Of course, you can't jump into bed with everyone who wants right. to bring you to Japan, so to speak, but. <laughs> he he panned out he mentioned the right he name dropped the right peers of course I vetted that and you know made sure that he, it was all above board and and all the terms and everything and it it ended up resulting in, in a very successful tour of Japan and and I went with my uh, still current tour manager and you know it just never would have happened otherwise there were other things like that I mean I played a series at Starbucks on Astor Place in New York City that it's no more, but it it was a pretty hip thing at the time. People were doing listening parties like Indigo Girls and, you know, mm. and I just 
I drank coffee there every day. So I just kind of buddied up to the the folks there, the manager. They let me play there regularly. And a fella saw me there and he ended up being a promoter who brought artists to Germany and Austria. And I did two tours uh, that way. And, you know, it really is just about putting yourself out there, but making sure that you're ready when you're at each sort of step along the way. So when people ask me like at a, at a sort of ground level for the best advice, um, if they're just starting out, I always try to emphasize how important it is to have that regular gig where you're literally just honing your craft and trying things and figuring out who you are and how you relate to an audience. And it's sort of a low pressure situation. Um, and then hopefully, you know, by the time you're actually ready for those opportunities that, that result from being seen and heard, you know, you're, you're secure and you're confident and you can just, you know, blow all that up. That's so true. Cause I see a lot of people, they put a lot of work into their recording mm -hmm. And then they're not regularly gigging and then they're, they're hoping or expecting that someone's going to come along and ask them to go do a national tour. Yeah. And it's like, first of all, even if someone did, would you be ready for that? Mm -hmm. Have you been practicing? Have you experienced the audience, you know, yeah. having rapport with them and, you know, just not just standing up there and going, this song is about this, blah, blah, blah. Right. And then play the song, you know, you need to have a give and take and all that. And people just haven't really thought that out. They're just put out the recording and then expect that things are going to happen. Yeah. It's a, it's kind of a bizarre time, you know, for on that front because of all these shows like the voice and American idol. But, you know, I will say that many of those acts who we see on those shows have been doing exactly what we're talking about for That's a while. True. So more power to those folks for having that opportunity. And I don't knock that. I think it's phenomenal that certain people who, maybe have even been background singers for 20 years and made a living at that, have that chance to step out and shine. But, you know, they have done that work. They've shed and they their craft is at a very high level. Um, you know, I think that there are other ways to do it too. You know, for some of the, the young folks now, maybe if they have a regular concert window uh, broadcast that they do or something on their YouTube channel, there are ways to push yourself with a smaller audience or in a different medium. And I think it's good to do all of it, you know, and, and say yes as often as you possibly can, because you're going to learn something from every single experience, even the ones that are a little embarrassing or where the audience is noisy or whatever, you know, sort of have as high a tolerance, you know, a, a non diva kind of a tolerance as you can. And then, all of that is kind of in you, like, like an armor, you know, you're ready sort of for anything. Oh yeah. Great advice. So I'm curious, what made you decide to start your label? Mm -hmm. And instead of just kind of putting out your music yourself, why did you decide to actually start a label with a name and then grow it and, and start bringing on other artists? Excellent question. Um, you know, there were a couple of examples of that, that I saw, and it really is true when, when people, are asked, you know, sometimes, you know, how did you know that you had the confidence to do this or why'd you go down this path? People almost always mention a mentor or an example. And, you know, I, it was just normal to me, A, because I'd always had a foot in business in some respect, even in a sort of a cute young way that people, you know, thought was adorable and kind of laughed at. But for me, it was quite serious. Like I started a barrette business when I was oh. 11. And I took it pretty far. My best friend and I, she was very visually talented and we were both very crafty and we loved to make all this stuff and we wore it and everybody would always ask us to make it for them. So, you know, we would spend hours and hours. We were really serious about it. We had like a little assembly line in our bedrooms. We would go and buy these supplies in New York City and, and spend our entire weekends. Instead of going to parties, we were making like hundreds of barrettes, putting them <laughs> on these like handmade little cards, you know, pinned to them and writing in Sharpie our logo. And we'd sold them to stores all over the tri-state area. And then even, you know, we went on vacation once with her family to Florida. We had, we went into stores there, they took orders and it was, it was kind of novel because they looked at us and thought, wow, they're so young, but they looked at the product and it was competitive. And, you know, so we did it for a couple of years and, and, you know, all the money we'd make from it, our parents would have us put in our like college accounts, you know, but it taught us a lot 
about business and about presentation and about being professional. And it was also really fun. And, you know, I think that was a great early example. I'm glad that we were encouraged to do that. We certainly weren't pushed. It was our idea. But we never saw our youth as sort of an obstacle to that. And similarly with music, I'd been making these demos, you know, early on on cassette. But I always wanted them to look nice. I would make a collage and then like get my mother to bring me to a photocopier's and make a color copy of it and then sprinkle glitter on it. You know, I was always like <laughs> thinking about the presentation and no one ever told me in my immediate family or you know, circle of support that that was ridiculous. You know, they were always like, well, that's terrific, honey. You know, like you keep it up, you know, pat on the head. And so bridging that idea of kind of a, an, an early Warholian sense that I could do anything and create anything and share it. And, and there was meaning in that with the more substantive message and, and lyrical content that I was developing in college, especially after discovering some of these folk artists like Sean Colvin and, and Indigo Girls and, and Suzanne Vega. And, you know, and then the, the example of, of, women running their own labels like Ani DeFranco and also Lorena McKennett, who was very, very influential on me. Mm. Um, you know, I, it just was sort of like, why can't I do this? I don't know where I get that from completely. I, I mean, my mom's a little like that, you know, why not you? Like, and then, you know, she's a feminist, but it wasn't like we weren't harangued with it. It was just sort of in the water, you know? And, mm. and then also being a New Yorker, I think you're just, a little tough like that. Um, but it was also that stylistic shift from kind of bubblegum pop, which there's nothing wrong with, you know, I think it's fun. And I, that's the place I came from early on just because it's the only place I, where I thought I would fit as a teenager. Mm. Um, and then the, the content evolving and, and realizing that's not where I was going to fit anymore. You know, I, I, and then that major label experience where they kind of wanted me to be the next Alanis at the piano or Ani uh. at the piano and work with this producer, that producer, I, you know, all of which in theory I might have been open to if it hadn't been on such a massive scale with so much risk. You know, I just thought the only way I'm going to actually self develop is if I do this on my own. And then, you know, the idea to work with other artists came a little bit later, a few years in. Um, I learned so much about the business and I had distribution by then and I'd gone to college radio with a bunch of releases. And, um, you know, there were people suggesting it to me, actually. My manufacturer at A to Z Media, she was like, you know, Rachel, I think you should work with some other artists. You're pretty good at this marketing stuff. And I was like, oh, it'd be such a drain. I don't want to do it. But then, you know, at the same time, I I love, I'm such a fan. So there would be certain things that would cross my field and I'd wish I could help or I'd advise. But I didn't know how to really integrate that into Empress until I decided to do these indie charity compilations called New Arrivals. Mm -hmm. And that was a first foray into learning how to license other artists songs and and you know kind of promote other people as well as myself and then from that is how I eventually signed Seth Glear, Melissa Ferrick, um, Fragile Tomorrow and now Kay's Choice so we have a whole bunch of people now and they're all amazing and diverse and it's a uh, it's an ongoing adventure. That's very cool so the, this is kind of funny so you know I discovered you on mp3.com mm -hmm. and then I realized like, oh my gosh, she actually has a record label. You know, how cool is that? You know, she must have really good distribution. So I think you're, I can't remember. I think it was the album Illusions Carnival mm -hmm. was coming out. And I took my first trip to New York because oh, wow. I'm a California person. So I'm not out there often. And the first time I went to New York, I went into the giant Virgin Mega store that was over oh, by like I N NYU. I know. Store. I was so sad last time I went back and it was gone. But I was like, okay, I'm in New York. I have to see if Rachel Sage's CD is oh. in the store. So I go <laughs> and I- were checking my compliance, as they I say. was checking <laughs> to see, yes, if they were, if you were actually having distribution in Virgin Megastore, you know, I and I there? found it. Oh, yes, I bought it. Up. I was like, this is so cool. I, I can they, buy they it probably in only store. had one or two copies because that's how it worked. You know, if someone bought it- Yeah, it was like two copies. Then they could replace it, you know. It, it was right, it's 
<laughs> it's like when you send your CDs to CD Baby and they say, only send three copies just in case nobody buys it. But you you know, know, that particular store, it, it was great because they did treat indies with respect. And, you know, they'd have Michael Jackson next to me. And they also allowed us to do in-store performances and launch our albums there. Same with Tower Records down on Lower Broadway. Mm. And Tower, that's a quirky story. I, I actually, uh, I really kind of, finagled my way in there using my acting training. I <laughs> pretended to be a manager representing Rachel Sage. Oh I think gosh. I had glasses, a hat on, maybe a bun. And at the time I had like hair down to my waist and, you know, wore contacts. And I just went in and I was like, I don't know what possessed me, but I saw these artists in the listening booth and it was very kind of Lilith Fair skewed and Jewel and Sarah McLaughlin and and I said, I, I was just like, I belong in there. I think if people heard my work in that context, I would, you know, change some hearts and minds. And, and I was just determined. So I walked in one day and I said, you know, hello. I'm not going to say who I said I was, but I made up a name. And uh, <laughs> it was probably illegal. I don't know. But I did it and I was put in touch with a buyer and in their basement. And I had a little five-minute meeting and I left samples. And the upshot is... They put my CD in the listening booth and they took a whole bunch in on consignment. And for that uh, few months, it was the best selling indie release they had. So, you know, sometimes in this business, you just have got to have a little chutzpah. Oh my gosh. Um, I love that. Yeah. You're so gutsy. <laughs> you know, I don't know if I'm as gutsy anymore. I think, you know, the world sort of weathers you a little bit, but I certainly was then. <laughs> that is, that is funny. <laughs> So I want to talk a little bit about your new project because, yeah. I mean, this is what, your 13th album, is that right? It's my 13th release, I guess. It's it's my 12th studio album. I, I did a compilation a year ago of all the, the competitive dance music that's been on television. And so that's its own kind of compilation, but it's my 12th original full album. And it's very oh, That is just amazing to me. I mean, you've been, you're just like a machine. You put uh, this stuff out like every two years, you know? Yeah, years I guess I do I you know I the songs have just come I've been lucky but there are also other people I know who write songs every day and I'm not one of those people so hats off to them you know it's it's for me it's more about when something's ready it's I then I put it out there but it, I don't really force it too much so well, you seem to work in kind of an outpouring way because what your bio said is that you basically hold yourself up in a hotel room and wrote this album, For this which one. is yeah. not, this is not how I work. So it impresses me. You know, it's the first time I've ever done it that way. And I'll tell you what happened. I, basically, you know, I mentioned I've had a bunch of songs on this uh, reality show, Dance Bombs, and it was a, a quirky, unexpected development. You know, we didn't pitch that show. We had no idea they were going to be on there. Um, but they, you, they source music from a library that did have my material. So it was already pre-cleared and, and it was just a big mm. surprise, but it was very symbiotic because of my roots in dance. And I got a big kick out of it. You know, I, I cried when I saw Maddie Ziegler dance around in my, my song birthday, it was a few years ago and she was just so beautiful and so musical and and she was a prodigy and all of the dancers in that, in that group were just exceptional. So it's exciting, especially when it's in a, you know, in a world that you kind of left behind and it was a bittersweet, you know, departure for me from dance. So it's been a full circle. And I, and I decided after I wrote the song happiness, um, and she danced to that, that I wanted to write a whole album of music inspired by dance in whatever capacity. So, you know, I sat down and I wrote a, a couple tunes like that. The first two songs I wrote for the album were Heaven is a Grocery Clerk, which was inspired by a painting, and Lorena, uh, which is a, a tribute to uh, one of my idols, Lorena McKennett. And mm, I wondered about and, that. And, um, you know, I, I did try to imagine um, the music arranged in a way that that would be conducive to dance, lyrical dance, especially, but any kind of dance. And, and then once I had that kind of under my belt, I thought, well, I, I think I want to do a whole album with this theme. And I was about to head back on the road. It didn't really have that kind of reflective downtime in New York, which is so luxurious where, you know, 
you don't have any deadlines and nobody's asking for anything from you. And I was really, really busy. But I also knew that I had a few days off in Europe between two festivals. And so, you know, I talked about it with my tour manager. I was like, is this crazy? Should we just, instead of trying to fill all this time, plug it all up with radio interviews and this and that and the other, you know, I think it would be really a, a valuable thing to just be in a hotel room in London and try to be inspired and think about all this and, and just carve that time out for myself and kind of set that goal to write a song a day. So that's what I did. I've never done it before. I didn't know if it was going to happen and it was slow going in the beginning, but somehow it all, that focus came together and, and I was really grateful to the muse. Mm, that's awesome. So what was the recording of the album like? I recorded the album in just a few days in terms of the basic tracks. Um, usually we do, you know, three or four songs a day with bass and drums and, and piano or bass, drums, and acoustic guitar as the basic kind of foundation. Um, so that was quick. And it was just a really, really fun process. I worked with such a great rhythm section, um, Doug Yole and uh, Andy Mack on drums, um, my old friend Mike Biseglia on bass. He played bass on everything. And um, I played the piano and guitar. And then we just kind of layered on that with members of my band, The Sequins, my string players, Ward Williams and Kelly Halloran. And we had a bunch of special guests. Um, just, you know, it's such an incredible excuse when you're making an album or a video for that matter, to reach out, to aim high and, and to let people know that you'd like to involve them in the process. And I got a lot of yeses. So I ended up with, um, you know, Matt Nakoa, who's a wonderful singer songwriter who uh, sang on a bunch of the music and, Liris Hung, who plays with Indigo Girls, played violin. Um, also Dave Egar, just a phenomenal cellist, helped arrange some strings and performed uh, on a bunch of the tunes. So it, it was a great process. I, I think I did the majority of it last August and September. Then I had to go back out on the road a bit. Um, we kind of got back to vocal overdubs after my tour. It was immediately after the Paris bombings, actually. So that was... You know, I came back with such a heavy heart and, and didn't know really how to reapproach this process. But, you know, like most artists, you just you try to seize that freedom that you have to be expressive and to just put everything that you have into your work. Mm. Wow, that sounds awesome. I cannot wait for our audience to hear your Aww. new album. So it, it's coming out on, what's the it's date? It's coming out May 20th, but we will have it available along my upcoming tour which starts April 8th. So cool. pretty soon you can get a copy. It will probably be coming through your town. We're hitting about 20 cities this spring and, and it will also be available for pre-order on iTunes in about a month. And it's also available right now through pledgemusic.com. Aha. Okay. Now we know how to get it. Yeah. So since we are female entrepreneur musician, yeah. I just wanted to touch a little bit on the business side sure. as far as you know, where kind of your streams of income come from? I mean, I know you do like over a hundred dates of performing. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, obviously you've had some placements, you, you know, got re lots of record sales online and, and, you know, in stores. So where can you give us kind of a breakdown of where all that comes from? It's just really useful information for other sure. singer songwriters to figure out, you know, where they're going to get their money from. Yeah. I mean, I think you kind of just touched on it all. You know, those are definitely the prongs for the most part. Um, live touring has been a really consistent, ongoing effort for me um, for many years. And, you know, the hope is always that you build in each market and you play a certain type of gig and you pull 30 people. And then the next time you play it, it's 60 and then maybe it's 100. And or maybe you go back and you support a much larger audience who, you know, and much larger art artists like I perform a lot with Judy Collins and so, you know, I try to stay humble and I don't really have as much of a stake in headlining a show as reaching as many people as I can, although I love doing intimate shows as well. But my point is, you know, sometimes the op opportunity to do a support slot actually makes a lot more sense, especially if you're in a new market. Um, like I've played some markets in the Midwest where I'd never been before and having the opportunity 
to play a beautiful large theater and play for 20 minutes or 25 minutes opening for Judy Collins is, is equally beneficial for us as me playing, you know, a, a bar in Milwaukee for 50 of my own fans because you're widening the circle. Well, and I think congruency too. I mean, you with Judy Collins makes complete sense mm-hmm. versus, you know, sometimes they throw these opening bands with someone that's a totally different genre. You know, it's yes. not going to be the right fans. So that's, that's important if you're going to do an opening, I'm sure. Absolutely. And, you know, I do a lot of touring overseas in Europe and, and in the UK specifically, Ireland, Germany. Um, and that's been a pretty steady ongoing, you know, build for me in terms of increasing my listenership over there. Um, I, a long time ago, I supported the incredible Mr. Eric Burden of the animals over in Germany and Austria. And then, you know, later on, I, I've done tours, um, with Al Stewart and, um, you know, just a variety Ridian, who's an artist who I'd never heard of, but he's quite big over there. Hmm. So that's what I was mentioning about saying yes. You know, it's, of course, it's important to do research and congruency as you mentioned is important. But, you know, if you have an opportunity to open for someone who's even quite different from you, depending on the region that you're in, maybe that's okay. You know, I I was concerned at certain junctures that opening for certain people might not make sense. Like maybe I'm too pop to open for this Broadway person, or maybe I'm too folk to open for this rock band. But at the end of the day, music is music. And, you know, most of my heroes came out of the 60s and 70s and and boy was music diverse back then. Oh yeah. Well, do you feel like people are still buying CDs and and merch at concerts these days? I think that's the primary place where they're buying yeah. them. But, you know, there are also these creative packages that we we work hard to come up with to reward the most supportive fans and um everything from signed merchandise to limited edition t-shirts and artwork. And, you know, I really enjoy that kind of, um, 360 view of, of the creative process. And, and I like sharing, you know, artwork that I may have done that didn't make it into the album, but it's still a reflection of who I am and an insight, uh, into my music, you know, handwritten lyrics, things like that. But Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, you know, uh, the focus is, always on the music primarily and those other things come after. So it's, that's sort of the, the time that I'm in right now actually is that fun part where you're figuring out creative ways to share everything and, and to let your fans in, in a really intimate way. Um, And I think that part is exciting, you know, even sharing videos behind the scenes things about the process. And not everybody's comfortable with that. I'm not always comfortable with waking up first thing in the morning and then like turning the camera on myself and being like, you know, schleppy or sloppy or whatever. I'm a very polished (laughs) kind of a person. Everybody knows that about me. Uh, Whereas other people pull that off and it's so authentic and adorable. And I'm like, you know, let me put my face on and (laughs) I'll I'll, I'll talk to the flip cam, you know, at the gig. (laughs) Yeah, this is why I like podcasting, so I can yeah. podcast in my sweats with my hair <laughs> up in a bun, you know? But, you know, I think it's just figuring out what works for you, figuring out what does feel authentic and, you know, thinking of it also from the other person's perspective on the other end. Like I said, I'm a huge fan. So I do feel like I am in touch with things that spark my interest and pull me in. And, you know, I, I do pay attention to what my greatest inspirations like Elvis Costello and, you know, Kate Bush and all different artists, they, they have different sort of levels of intimacy with their audience and, and they're all valid. They're just, you know, they're personal. So. Well, since I know that you're such a fan, I was wanted to ask you if there's any, you know, kind of newer album by a female independent artist that you would recommend to our audience. Cause although many of them are female independent artists, they also love listening to them. Oh, sure. Well, you know, one of my favorite artists is a young woman named Amber Rubarth. And um, I just, I followed her for some time now. We're friendly and we see each other at festivals. And she also was half of a wonderful pop group um, called the Paper Raincoat with the equally talented Alex Wong, who is now in Nashville. 
And, you know, Amber also does a lot of side projects. It's part of what I think makes her so interesting. Um, but, you know, what I love about her is that she is so generous sharing her process. She does inspirational kind of TED Talks and she mixes it up a lot. She'll do albums that are recorded live in front of one microphone and then lush, you know, layered albums. And, and I just love her sensibility. She has a beautiful voice and I relate to her material. Um, let's see some other folks, um, a, a lovely Americana artist who I just discovered named Gabriel Louise. And, uh, she's out of Colorado and just really organic, um, beautiful writing. She went to Berkeley, so she's a you know, wonderful musician. But there's something a little bit old-fashioned about her sound and charming and classic. And you know, I just tend to gravitate th toward that in general, which isn't something people would always expect from me. <laughs> but uh, on the flip side of that, I, you know, they're doing great. They've already blown up. You know, but I love Lucius. I love everything they do. I, oh, I've been seeing things come through to me all the time about Lucius lately. Phenomenal. And, you know, they're, they're so good live. And I think that's why their fan base is so fervent because they just relish that experience and they mm. cross so many genres so effortlessly and unapologetically, you know, they're not trying to fit into any particular expectation. They're, they really are original. And that, that goes a long way with me. Awesome. Those are great recommendations. Thank you. Yeah. So you've given us so much great wisdom and uh -huh. experience. <laughs> and, you know, I really appreciate that. And I know our listeners do. So how can they get in touch with you online? I'm pretty accessible. You can ping me uh, on Facebook. It's facebook.com slash Rachel Sage page. And I spell my name a little quirky, R-A-C-H-A-E-L. And then I'm on Twitter, just at Rachel Sage, and on Instagram, Rachel underscore Sage. And all those links are at the bottom of my website at rachelsage.com. So please come Perfect. say hello. Yes. Yeah. Get get involved with her. You know, she she posts little musings about what's going on on her page and, you know, get on her email list. So they give you all the information about what's coming up and where she's going to be. They're really, really good about that. So I've, I've been on it for years oh, and good. been, you know, following where you're at and still haven't made it to a show. I dang know. It. We have to I make just, that happen. I live too far from like, now I live four hours from San Francisco oh and goodness. four hours from LA. So I'm kind of in between the places that you usually go. Well, you know, you're talking to the right person. We could probably bridge that gap. <laughs> yeah, we'll figure that out. I mean, I don't know if you have any fans in Fresno, but it's not exactly a big bohemian hub. <laughs> well, you know, we can, you know, there's probably a place where you go or you play. Um, oh, there is. Actually, we saw last year the Waylon Jennies oh, I love at that. this place called the Tower Theater downtown, and it would be perfect for you. See, I'll, we'll get on that. We'll send yes. that pitch out ASAP. <laughs> totally. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here and spending this time with me and just sharing all of your, your knowledge and experience with the listeners. Oh, thank you for listening and being so supportive through the years. And, you know, I admire what you do. What you do is so important to be an artist, but also to be a leader and, and to share your talent in both realms is uh, very laudable. So thank you. Thank you. Now go out and make great music, connect with your fans, and grow your business. Female Entrepreneur Musician has been brought to you by femusician.com and femalemusicianacademy.com. With editing by Jen Eads of 317 Sound Design and music by Stella Ronson.